0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit SojournMontrose.org. Okay, so let's jump right into John 18, but right before we do that, let me just remind us kind of where we're at, right? So um, starting in John 13, John 14, right, Jesus began what was called his Farewell discourse. So Jesus says the hour has come, and he spends the better part of those next few chapters, right, of the book of John saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going down. This is why it's significant. This is what I've come to do. I'm about my Father's glory. Let me pray for you, right? That was John 17, one big prayer for not only his disciples, but for those who would believe through their testimony about Jesus, right? So we've come to the conclusion of sort of Jesus's final words, right? He knows the time has come. He said all that he's needed to say, and we arrive at John 18, and he says this. knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now here's the thing. I think anytime we jump into a, a narrative portion of, of the Bible like this, where it's maybe not quite as explicit what it is that we're supposed to learn from it, right? It's like, okay, so that happened. Why does it matter? And yet I think what we see in these first four verses is quite, uh, quite clearly an insight into uh, Jesus' state of mind in this moment, and into Jesus' awareness of what it is that is about to take place, and his understanding that that all of this that all of this is is under control and according to a plan that he is entirely aware of and so if we could um, sort of summarize these first four verses, what I want us to see here is that Jesus gives himself over first. Willingly and then second, knowingly, right. So let's let's just kind of zero in and look at how that takes place, right? In verses one and two, what we see is that um, Jesus takes his disciples and enters into a garden. Now, here's what's sort of significant about this whole thing, right? In that, in light of Palm Sunday, we know, right? We know that Jesus has entered in at his at the height of his popularity, right? And now Judas, the betrayer, has come. It tells us that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that place because Jesus met with his disciples often in this place, one of of which Judas was, right? So he spent much time with Jesus in this garden. from other gospel accounts, we can know that that is Gethsemane. And so he spent right this this last week again at the height of his popularity he's now about to be betrayed and arrested and here's what happens J- judas right with a band of soldiers and some of the chief priests and the pharisees all come together and they go to arrest him now here's how i know that or here's how we can know right that jesus willingly gave himself over to this. I think uh, some of the temptation for us when we read this might be to say, well, gosh, that was so unfortunate that that happened to Jesus. And if only he'd had an escape route or, you know, like if only he had taken advantage of the political clout that he had at that moment as the beloved of the people, as all of these people have come to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, right? The time was ripe, For Jesus to exert His power in front of the religious of the day, the Pharisees, the high priests, in front of the Roman rule of the day, the secular people of the day, right? All of them are there. He has an opportunity in this moment to exert His power in such a way that people would say, that's the Messiah. And yet it tells us that although He had every opportunity to do this, he chose not to. He willingly goes, right? He goes to a place that Judas, right, knows Jesus' frequents. So you got to remember, right, like there's no Find My Friends app on Judas's iPhone where he can be like, when he goes to betray Jesus, he can go and say, look, um, I know Jesus is right here. He just checked in on Yelp. That's not there, And so you would think, again, right, if Jesus was looking to avoid, if Jesus was looking to escape and wait for the political moment to make his earthly power known, right, that's probably not the place you would go, especially since we know from just a few chapters ago that he knows Judas is going to be the one to betray him. So he goes to a place that Judas is highly likely to know of and to know that Jesus will be there. He goes there willingly. Now, if that that wasn't enough, what we have to know is that this is all taking place at night, right? And again, this is a world devoid of electricity. So no street lamps, nothing like that, right? This is at night. Like everything in this moment is to Jesus' advantage, right? There's no way for Judas to know explicitly where he is. It's in the dark. He's approaching with approximately 200 people, right? Guards, soldiers, weapons clanging, torches out, people talking, feet shuffling, right? Like Judas is not sneaking up on Jesus here and Jesus going, well, shucks, right? He's in the middle of a private garden, most likely walled off in the dark at night with his disciples, Right? If Jesus wanted to sort of hop the fence or get out the back door, if he wanted to escape or come out from underneath what was about to happen to him, he had every opportunity to do so. And yet, instead of retreating into the darkness, instead of living to fight another day, Jesus does the complete opposite, right? It tells us, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Right? So rather than stepping behind his disciples and going, hey, y'all, y'all take care of these guys, all right? I'm, I'm going this way. Right? He steps forward, he steps in front of his disciples, and he says, whom do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. But here's the thing, right? Jesus doesn't just come willingly. He comes, he gives himself over also knowingly, right? Verse 4 says, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. So again, right? Not only is this just not sort of a a, a chance, unfortunate situation for Jesus, this is also not happening with Jesus being naive, right? Jesus isn't just kind of like, oh, Judas brought the welcome party. Like, yes, it's going to be a great night. Jesus is fully aware of what Judas has done. Jesus is fully aware of what the high priests, the Pharisees, and the Roman soldiers have come to do. And even with that knowledge, he came forward. And he said, whom do you seek? So Jesus, both willingly and knowingly, comes forward. And he gives himself over with great intent, with great purpose. And this should be, I think, astounding to us. Because if nothing else, the book of John has done a great job up to this point showing us how powerful Jesus is and how Jesus is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but he is also the very Son of God. He has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead right? He has healed people. He, I mean, like any number of things that Jesus has done up to this point. And if we branch out even to other gospels and we look at the way Jesus has power over nature by calming waters or, or how Jesus, right? Jesus has done so many things up to this point that show us that he is powerful enough to escape this reality, and yet he gives himself over. Right? So that's the question we've got to ask, I think. like, if, if you knew what was coming for you, and if you knew you had the power to stop it, and if you knew that you were not just Jesus of Nazareth, but you were the very Son of God and you were due everybody's worship right then and there, and that at his word he could have them all bend a knee, bow, and say his name in worship, not in disdain, like, why wouldn't he do that? If it were me, I'm thinking that's what I would do. Right? The ultimate, like, I'll show you moment. And yet Jesus comes forward and he asks them, who are you seeking? So why does Jesus do this? Well, um, let's continue reading. Jesus came forward This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. And so what we see here is a, a developing reality, right? Jesus gives himself over willingly. He gives himself over knowingly, and he does it for his own, right? This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. So here's the thing. Jesus puts himself in front of his disciples physically and asks, right, that those who would come to accuse him would deal with him, right? He says, look, I I know that these people are associated with me. They're my followers. They're my disciples, right? You're probably just as angry at them having either betrayed the faith in the eyes of, of the religious of the day or fomented rebellion in the eyes of the secular of the day, the Romans, right? all sort of equally upset with the whole crew, not just Jesus, but Jesus steps out and he says, deal with me, not with them. And then it says that this was done in order to fulfill the words that Jesus himself had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now that's a reference to to last week's chapter, right? Chapter 17. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to jump into chapter 17 just for a moment so that we can understand what it is that Jesus is doing here. Because what Jesus is doing, right, is not something that's only physical, right? In the moment, Jesus is preserving them physically from harm because he's saying, invite that harm upon me. And yet, if we go back to the context of the prayer in John chapter 17, we'll see that there's a deeper spiritual reality at work. That when Jesus says, Of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one. He's not only talking about the physical in this moment. He's talking about a spiritual reality that he is now on his way to accomplish on behalf of his disciples. And so here's what um, chapter 17 says, right? So in verse 12, and I think we only went to verse 11 last week, so this should be appropriate. In verse 12, this is what Jesus says about his disciples, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, speaking to his Father. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Right? So Jesus makes it very clear that the disciples belong to him and that they've been given to him by the Father. And so what we can know is two things. One, Jesus not only promises in 18, right, or fulfills his promise that, that he will not lose one of his own in sort of the, the, that physical moment, but that Jesus will not lose his own in the spiritual sense because what he's doing in John 17 is he's praying to God the Father and he's saying, look, I know I'm leaving, I have kept them in my time with them, now you will keep them after I've left. He places His disciples into the care of the Father, and He does so with great confidence. Because He and the Father are one. And so Jesus, what we can know from this, is that Jesus does not lose those who belong to Him. And this is true in spite of the fact that we can sort of now know from some historical accounts, and some of them maybe some questionable um, origin, but we can know that the majority of the disciples went on to be martyred for the faith. And yet, what Jesus says is true, and what Jesus says is fulfilled. And so, this is how we can know that although there is a physical sense in what Jesus is saying is true in John 18, there's a deeper and greater spiritual sense in which it is true, and will remain true. Right? That's what Verse 11 for us, concluded with last week, says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So here's the thing, right? That prayer and the portion of the prayer that we talked about last week was specifically prayed over his disciples, right? But there's a shift in the prayer in verse 20, and this is, this is what it says. I do not ask for these only, that is, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And what is it that Jesus asks for these who will believe through the word of the disciples? Skip down to verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here's the thing. Jesus says the disciples belong to him in those first few verses of chapter 17, but then he makes it very clear in verse 24 that it's not just the disciples that belong to him, but but it's anybody who believes through the testimony of the disciples that belongs to him, and so that includes you and me. And so what that means is when Jesus says, that He doesn't lose those who belong to Him, we can draw great comfort from that reality. Because by what Jesus is about to go and do, we in fact do belong to Him. And Jesus does not lose those who belong to Him. 1 Peter 1.5 tells us that we are being guarded by God's own power by God's own power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are His glorious inheritance. Paul prays over the, the church at Ephesus. He, he says, I pray that you would comprehend the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints. That's you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, that's not what I think, right? God, you're so lucky. God, what a glorious thing to consider me part of your inheritance, right? I don't I don't think that. And yet the marvel of what Jesus has done is that we are being protected by God's own power because we are God's own inheritance. And here's the thing. If there is anything that the Bible makes clear for us, it's one, that God's power cannot be questioned or thwarted, and then two, that his inheritance will not be robbed from him. In fact, he will go to such great lengths that he will send his one and only begotten son to ensure that that inheritance is secured for him, that he might have that people not just to whom he reveals himself, but through whom he reveals himself to the world. And so Jesus gives himself over, knowingly, willingly, for his own. And then we're going to conclude here. Verses 10 and 11 say this. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now here's the thing. Jesus, up until this point, has talked quite a bit, right? He's given a lot of instruction to His disciples. He's told them what life is going to look like for them. He's told them what obedience looks like. Those who love me, obey me, right? Well, here Jesus Jesus walks that talk. This is the prayer that Jesus just prayed being put into action. So here's the thing. We don't have this account in the book of John, but in other Gospels, we have uh, an account of Jesus and the time that he spends in Gethsemane before Judas comes to betray him. And before Judas comes to betray him, what we learn from those other accounts is that that Jesus is in the middle of anxious prayer, right? like not the distracted I'm half watching looney tunes prayer but like but anxious like deep sorrow weeping prayer Jesus is in the middle of and and as he's praying this is what he actually prays to to God his father he says father if there's if there is any way if there's any way that this could be done differently if there's any way that we could sort of uh m- make this work um without all of this stuff that I know is coming um then then I would prefer to do it that way. But he concludes his prayer with these words that I think many of us are familiar with, even if we don't know maybe a lot about the Bible, right? Jesus responds with, but, or yet, not my will, but your will be done. And so it's just another moment, right, that speaks to How Jesus knows what's coming, and yet in the middle of it, he is willing to walk in obedience to God the Father because he knows that it is the will of the Father. Right? So, this is what we've seen. Jesus knowingly, willingly gives himself over for his own according to the will of the Father. According to the will of the Father. So, Jesus doesn't just talk about obedience, right? In this moment, he lives obedience. Instead of rising up in the greatness of his power, instead of causing every single knee, not just in that camp, but around the world, to bow and to hear his name proclaimed in glory and in might, he stays himself. And he's bound and he's walked out of the garden into the presence of men who would presume to have authority over him, but do not. And so my question is in this moment, um, you know, what is it that what what took place between the anxiety and the weeping of the prayer in Gethsemane to now saying, Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, I am He. What is it? What is it that that stealed Jesus, not E? A-E-E, um, strengthen Jesus, right? What, what was it that comforted Jesus? What was it that gave Jesus confidence in that moment? What was it that caused him to, to put that, that foot in front of the other, in front of his disciples and say, I am he? Well, I think he's given us clues all throughout um, the book of John. Um, we see in the book of John, I think, the the theme of really the, the whole Bible and really the, all, all of creation. And we've said this regularly throughout many sermons uh, in the past here at Sojourn, but we really believe uh, the, the, the Bible is sort of one, not sort of, it is one cohesive story. Um, and it's telling a story about how God has always purposed to have for himself a people, and, and that that would be a people that he not only reveals himself to, but that he also reveals himself through And what we see in the Old Testament is just sort of the failure of that time and time again, particularly with God's people, the people of Israel, how they fail. In spite of the fact that God reveals himself to them regularly, they fail to be the means by which God is revealed in glory. In fact, often he's revealed in shame through them because of their conduct. And so Jesus comes to rectify all that. In John 4.23, it says this, this is Jesus himself speaking. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Again, right? Jesus comes to make God known so that this people, by their worship, their their, their worship in spirit and in truth, will also make God's glory known. John chapter 5, verse 19 says this. This is Jesus again. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. So here's the thing. Jesus not only knows what's going to take place to Him, but He knows what's going to take place through Him. And so He's quieted with the fact. He's quieted with the fact that with the Father's will, when we walk according to it, we enjoy the Father's glory. Right? He knows. He knows that that's what God is about doing, that that is His Father's business, as Luke says, when he, as a teenager in the synagogue, says, "...surely I am about my Father's business." He's about bringing glory to the Father, and He knows that that only happens insofar as He is bent towards, obedient to the will of the Father. And so this should be somewhat sobering, because I think this is where we kind of get our call into action, right? In that, again, here's what's taking place for us, right? We should be astounded. At the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Word become flesh, dwelling among us, who not only was with God but was God in eternity past and will exist into eternity future. That He would give Himself over knowingly and willingly for us. That should be astounding. We should be comforted by the fact right? that He gave Himself over to that for His own, right? That we might not be lost, that we, we might be wrapped up in His protection and in His grace and in His kindness. But we should be sobered by the fact. We should be sobered by the fact that although Jesus is first our Savior, which is like, if we're going to take away anything from this morning, that's what I would have us take away from. Like, that's what primarily what this text is about. Jesus is first our Savior, but He's also our example. And what I mean by that, and what we see here in John 18, is that Jesus is fully submitted to what the Father is doing. There is no ounce of rebellion. There is no ounce of discord. There is no ounce of of anything other than fullness of submission to what the father is doing even at the expense of his own life now there are verses all across the bible particularly in the new testament obviously that that tell us that we are to be imitators of Christ that we are to be like Christ in this respect, and so what that means is that as Jesus was fully submitted to what the Father is doing, even at the expense of his own life, so we should also be fully submitted to what the Father is doing, even at the expense of our own lives, because we are fellow children with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ to the kingdom of God, and so that means that we are about the business of God, just like Christ was about the business of God. 1 John 3.16 tells us that as Jesus gave himself, we should also give ourselves. So when we look at Jesus, and Jesus willingly, knowingly gives himself over for his own, according to the will of the Father, for the glory of the Father, that means that you and I, as blood-brought children of the Father, also give of ourselves knowingly and willingly for his own. According to the will of the Father and for the glory of the Father. That's what our life looks like now. And so here's what that means right? it means we're fully submitted to what the Father is doing, even. And look, let's just be honest. In the United States, at least at this juncture, right, it's not going to cost us our life, most likely. But you know what? It could cost you that promotion, it could cost you that house in the burbs. It could cost you that certain kind of car. It could cost you this certain kind of lifestyle. It could cost you. It, in fact, I would wager not that it could, but that it will. Jesus here, by His obedience, shows the fullness of His submission to the Father. We're called to walk in the same submission to the Father according to His will because it leads to His glory. I mean, I don't think Jesus really pulled any punches, you know. Just read Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10. Like, he's been very upfront that following him will cost. And so that's how we can knowingly step into giving of ourselves knowing like Jesus has warned us that it's going the 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 whole new testament warns us that that walking according to uh, according to the father's will and giving ourselves for his people right the church like primarily and those who are yet to be saved is going to cost us something but that we can do that knowingly for his own with the comfort of the fact that when we step into the father's will right We step into the whole reason, the whole purpose for which all of this was created, which was to bring Him glory. And so we step into the fullness of what we were created to be. We step into life in His name. We step into a place of peace and joy because we're no longer warring with God, but we're experiencing fellowship with God. And so my hope is, especially at this juncture, Um, for us as a church, and as we approach Holy Week, uh, or we begin Holy Week today, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, right, that maybe, just maybe, in order to serve uh, those who belong to Jesus and those who are yet to belong to Jesus, that we would be willing, right, to, to, to knowingly lose a bit of reputation in order to make the most untenable story in human history, which is that a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter who died in relative obscurity somehow paid the penalty for all of our collective sins and now we experience eternal life through him, that we would pay the relational cost, the reputational cost, in order to see that message go forth because it's according to the Father's will that that would be done through his people and it's for the Father's glory that it would be done through his people. And that we, like Jesus, would step into it with confidence. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Come, we'll tell you about him. And so let's pray that as we enter into this last few moments of Jesus' life, as we celebrate what he's done for us in instituting communion, in going to the cross on our behalf, in being not only dead, but also buried, but now risen again in victory over Satan, sin, and death, that 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 would be that which drives us, that that would be what gives us the strength to give of ourselves knowingly, willingly, for His own, according to the will of the Father, and for the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. Lord, you have so obviously been generous to us in your son, Jesus. Uh, Your kindness is astounding. Father, that Jesus would humble himself, that Jesus would forsake his glory, that Jesus would lay that aside, that Jesus would, in this moment when he could most clearly and most unequivocally make His power known, Father, He instead chooses, He instead chooses to be taken on our behalf. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that that would um, truly be something that wins us, that captivates us, that captures our hearts and our minds this morning. And Lord, that we would be willing to give as Jesus gave, of all that we have, of all that we are. Lord, maybe this means that that we find ourselves like Jesus at some point. Weeping. Weeping over maybe what life could have been. Weeping over the difficulty of what we know, know life now requires as disciples of Jesus. But where we can wipe the tears from our eyes, where we can stand up And we can trust Jesus and move forward knowing that you do not lose your own and that the inheritance that we go to take pleasure in and partake of is one that is infinitely more glorious than anything we could experience in the here and in the now. So give us comfort and joy and hope and wonder in all of those realities this morning. And as we come to your table, as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, may we not forget... Lord, the price at which all of that has been purchased for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.